Howdy, folks. Hey, it's been a while. I know I changed up my cadence, so it's going to be like a two-week thing, but I also feel like because I've been taking this like YouTube break, I haven't had a lot of interaction with people um, online in a while, so that's why I'm saying it's been a while, not to be like, I'm not going to keep saying that every single episode, I promise. I received this interesting email about my last episode on Fashion Week from someone, and I want to read it out because... Yeah, I was just mind blown by the information they were giving me. Okay, reading. February New York Fashion Week was my first fashion week. It was incredibly eye-opening, seeing as I took on so many different hats, such as social media content creator, producer, creative director, casting, assisting, and pole runner, LOL. Girl, did my feet hurt running up and down the island of Manhattan, gifting off the runway pieces for all these celebs, influencers, friends of the brand. It was incredibly interesting seeing all the things that come into consideration for a show, whether it was how to choose models for casting or seeing stylists fighting our PR rep because the shoe brand who was sponsoring us didn't provide correct slash enough sizing for the models. Don't even get me started on the disaster of the PR team. This is some shady ass tea, LMAO. First of all, we had our invite list for at least two months before the show. You were on there, hee hee. Let me know why the PR team didn't send out invites until two days before the show. Like, come on. Then they were sending me influencers to dress so last minute that I was dressing this very annoying and cringe white influencer they had chosen minutes before models were walking down the runway. Also, the fact they only got white influencers for the show. Additionally, the fact that the hair team gotten through PR said everyone on their team knew how to braid hair and we definitely provided the braid work we wanted on our mood board. And day of, almost 85% of the team didn't know how to braid hair. A mess. Luckily, the show is beautiful thanks to our amazing team and producer, but it was really hurtful to see this PR agency put our show on the back burner and do some highly questionable things. Right after the show and discussing with team, we all agreed they should go. Unfortunately, I believe we still have them. Might be due to contractual issues. Not sure. Just overall, very interesting to see the money game and the quote-unquote exposure game. Don't even get me started on how most of my friends still have yet to receive pay or trade from the shows they have been in. Net 30, my ass. Net 90, stone me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say that's like a pretty common thing to be paid net 90, which is like a little ridiculous, especially considering how many people live paycheck to paycheck in the industry, like freelancers, and then you're not going to get paid until three months after you do a job. But the thing about organizing the seats months in advance and then having the PR agency reach out like a few days in advance and not even reach out to all the people that you chose, that was crazy to read and to find out because I've only been on the other side of receiving emails and being just like really shocked by how last minute everything is. Like I honestly don't know if I'm sitting for shows until the day before. And as someone who is a type A over planner who likes to keep a schedule, that is insane. <laughs> Fashion week is always insane, always tiring because of that. I've also had friends who were given seats because usually they're supposed to give you a seat assignment before the show. So you kind of like know what row you're going to be sitting in. And I have had friends who would sit down in their seat. They knew they were getting seated for front row, let's say. And then come the day of the show, they'll get a new seat assignment and where they're sitting in the second row or the third row because I guess like the PR agency was able to find like more higher profile people to come last minute and they needed to put them in the front row. It's all so disorganized. But everyone's like too afraid to really say anything about PR because PR does control 
fashion during fashion week. Like they are the most powerful players in the game during that week for sure. There was this viral video on TikTok of this girl. I don't even know if she was like an influencer or anything, but she was trying to get into this fashion week event and she was caught on camera yelling at the PR guy at the door, demanding to be let in. And the PR guy was just like yelling at her back, telling her to go home, have a safe flight. Cause she was like, I came all the way from Canada. And he was like, bye, have a good flight, have a safe flight. It was kind of iconic. And I feel like everyone really responded well to the video because in general, a lot of people are tired of the entitlement that influencers tend to have. Not saying that she was particularly entitled. Like, I don't know her situation. She might've had a bad day. She might've been told that she was on the list. And then when she got there, you know, like she wasn't on the list. The interaction was also like only recorded part of the way in already. So I don't know how it started. Either way, like yelling at PR people is a big mistake because they have the memories of elephants and they will remember if you yelled at them, if you were rude, if you were, you know, just not a nice person. And I guess unless you're like a celebrity status, because I've definitely have heard nightmares of my friends in fashion working with celebrities and saying like so-and-so celebrity was so rude. But unless you're like literally an A-lister, they're fine removing you from any future events and they won't think about it twice. <laughs> so there have been like moments where I know that I'm supposed to be at an event or I know that I'm definitely on the list, but if they don't have my name there, like I'm not arguing, <laughs> I'm just going to go home. Um, sometimes like I will call my manager just to confirm that I'm supposed to be there and then like he'll talk to his point of contact within the PR agency because like not everyone in PR and not everyone in fashion like knows everything that's going on. Like some information only gets filtered to some people and it's very unlikely that there is one person, even the head of their own agency, who knows all the comings and goings, the entire guest list memorized, right? So like in that case, like my manager will call like his point of contact and be like, hey, Mina's supposed to be on the list. Did you put her on the list? And yeah, but you know, if that's not an option, <laughs> then I just go home and I just, I don't think about it again because it's just not worth it to like stay in your name with one of the literal five PR agencies that run New York Fashion Week. But anyways, I don't even know if I want to keep doing Fashion Week. I'm going to be real. I was so exhausted by everything and I feel like the more I think about it, the more I'm like, this industry is not for me anymore. Like I'm not one of God's strongest soldiers actually. And I don't think I can do another week long chaotic uh, fashion week. Maybe if I was like really picking and choosing and I was like, I'm only gonna go to like one show or two shows. But I feel like I always get stressed out because all my friends are going to all these different shows and people are just posting about all the time. And you're like, I feel like I need to get into everything, even if you don't necessarily know the designer or care about the collection. But mostly I just feel like the fashion industry as a business and having a love of fashion are two different things. And sometimes they intersect, but a lot of times like I feel the stuff I like about fashion, which is the history and couture, those are not things that really appear. <laughs> during New York Fashion Week, um, especially because New York Fashion Week is so focused on the business side, on like ready to wear, on making sales and establishing trends. 
There's an academic side of fashion for sure that is in the industry, but I feel like when it comes to these kind of flashy um, influencer catering events, you don't really get that. So I don't know. That's just how I've been feeling. I also feel like Fashion Week, I always tend to consume a lot because I always want like new outfits for every event. This year, I actually like didn't go too hard. Like I definitely wore a lot of stuff that I already had. But also lately, I've just been wanting to be comfortable. Like I've been wearing a lot of t-shirts and shorts. Um, I've been wearing a lot of like Young, Ma Young Maven, which is this brand. It's a small brand. They make like basic hemp clothing. They're kind of like base range. They're a little bit more affordable than base range. I really love base range too. I just don't own that much stuff from them because it is like on the expensive side. But everything's just so comfortable. And I think with fall coming up, or I guess fall's already here, I, I just you know, I want to be cozy. I don't want to have to like think about like pulling off a fit. I do still like dressing up when the occasion calls for it. But I think with like my everyday life and like running errands and stuff, I am in comfy girl mode. <laughs> but yeah, I discovered Young Maven because actually Amanda Seyfried talked about how it's like one of her favorite brands. She was interviewed for The Strategist, which is part of New York Magazine. And in the future, she talks about some of the things that she can't live without, like her best purchases. And she mentioned this brand and she says she owns like so many t-shirts by them. And Amanda Seyfried is kind of living my dream life. Like she lives in upstate New York on a farm, a 19, I think it's a 1920s farm. I stalked her heavily about this because I was just, I watched her architectural digest tour for her New York apartment. And she mentioned she had an upstate house so I was like okay I need to know more about that and on Instagram she's always posting up with like animals and like living this beautiful country girl lifestyle so I am totally <laughs> patterning my life off of her she's my new influencer of the month I don't know part of all this might be because I also just came back from Idaho which was a glorious glorious romantic little trip I had the most amazing, beautiful, luscious time. I've been posting about it, being super annoying on social media about it. Um, but I really do, really do love Idaho. I went with a group of friends that I went to Idaho with for the first time a couple years ago. 2022 was a little rough for us, so we didn't have the capability to make time for a trip then. But this year, we did it. We brought our partners also, and my friend also had a baby. So we brought the one-year-old baby. And it was lovely. We stayed at this camp that one of my friend's husbands used to be a camp counselor at. So it's like a legitimate camp. Um, and he also attended it as a camper, a summer camper when he was younger. And so it was really beautiful, you know, to like have him sort of do this like walking tour along the campsite, talking about everything, um, sharing memories that were really precious. There was a mountain spigot. Also, this was like probably my favorite part of the entire campsite. Like I was obsessed with the spigot because it was this pipe basically that was connected to the spring water, like fresh spring water from a local, a local mountain. <laughs> I don't know the details, but it was the freshest tasting water I ever had. It was free flowing. The camp director who stays on campus like while, you know, people are renting it out. He said that it runs all year long, even in the wintertime, even when it's snowing and freezing, the water still runs. Nature is just so cool. And I think about moving to somewhere naturey all the time because I really feel like I'm happier in a natural environment where I can feel like the grass, I can cricket my toes in the grass, which I can't really do in New York because I, I honestly feel like every uh, part of the city is a biohazard. Um, so I would never walk around bare feet, barefooted crazy. Um, if anyone does that, I pray for them. I 
just feel like the city is so fast and it's so stressful and everyone's hustling here and everyone's working and therefore I feel like I have to hustle and work all the time. And it's really just not healthy, I think. Um, The only issue is I am such a community-oriented person. I really love having friends. (laughs) And I've made so many friends living in New York City. And I feel like if I moved anywhere, especially like to the country, I would have no friends and I would be very lonely. I don't know. Like I thought about moving upstate a lot because I know at least like if you're along the Metro North, which is this train that goes um, upstate up to a certain point from New York. So you can easily take the train like to and from the city if you want to. I thought about moving upstate um, just so I would have access to the city. But I also feel like a lot of people who live upstate are a little bit older. Um, they have families because that's that tends to be what makes people want to leave a city is to, to have a family because it's so expensive to have a family here. And also, you know, I honestly, I don't know if I want to have kids, but I, I don't know if I would want to have kids in New York City or in a city, period, if I was a parent. So yeah, not to say that I can't be friends with parents, but you know, it'd be like different. I don't know if I would have as much to connect with. I also feel like a lot of parents talk about their kids a lot and I wouldn't have any kids to talk about myself. I don't know. I'm overthinking about it. I have anxiety. What else is new? I'm definitely a city girl for now. City girl dreaming of a country life. <laughs> Living vicariously through cottagecore TikTokers as I've done since 2020. Speaking of social media, okay, I also, big news, have moved away from Twitter. Yay! I'm celebrating it. And I know there are some people out there who are going to be like, you left because you couldn't take the heat. Because the last couple tweets I made, they sparked some controversy. For one, the first of the bunch, I complained about teachers complaining on TikTok about um, how dumb their students are, which I didn't even think was like a hot take. But if you haven't been on TikTok, There are a couple viral videos of teachers complaining about how their students are not performing well and that they're like reading at a fourth grade level when they're in seventh grade. And a lot of these teachers are clocking parents for being the reason. And my opinion about that is I think for sure a lot of parents could be better and more involved with their kids, which could end up boosting their kids' grades. But at the same time, like, I think putting a general blame on parents is really counterproductive because a lot of parents would love to be more present with their kids' education, but they are literally unable to um, because they work really demanding jobs, long hours, they have like so many kids, they have other family members to take care of too, they have a bunch of chores. I grew up around a lot of upper middle class people and My school was known for performing super, super well um, in grades, SATs, academics, like all of that. And why? It's because a lot of these kids got private tutoring that their parents paid for. They got SAT prep that their parents paid for. A lot of my friends also had parents who worked as lawyers or doctors, and they would literally listen to NPR on the way to school, and they would also talk about the news with their parents at the dinner table. 
They had extra guidance from people their parents paid to help them get into colleges of their choice. They also had parents who went to Ivy League universities and who donated tons of money to get their kids into these schools. The entire education system is so fucked up and so like not meritocracy based. And I think rather than like placing blame on parents, I think it's more productive to focus on things that can be controlled. For example, like talking about lack of funding and why we need more funding, especially in like public schools in the cities, talking about like after school programs and the necessity of those or like affordable or even free um, tutoring services for students who are struggling a little bit. Because I think at the end of the day, a lot of parents who are literally unable to do more for their kids than they're already doing, they're going to see these TikToks. They're going to feel really bad about themselves, but there's nothing else that they can do. And then they're just going to feel like their kids are stupid. Like it's not um, productive. That's all I'm saying. And I think that teachers do have a right to complain, as does everyone when it comes to doing their job. But I also think that there's a time and a place. And I think doing it on TikTok, showing your face, literally like saying these things on TikTok which is a service, a social media platform that is predominantly used by kids where your students will probably come across your videos because you're teaching like 12 and 13 year olds. I think that really sucks. And that's really not cool because if I saw my teacher in middle school or high school ranting on TikTok about how all their students are really stupid, I'd feel really stupid. And I think self-confidence is a really important issue for educational growth. I mean, there are all those studies about how a lot of girls don't end up going into STEM because they're told from a young age that they're bad at math and they start believing it and they start believing that they can't do STEM. And once you have that ingrained in your head, you lose self-confidence and you don't want to pursue something you're quote unquote bad at. And the effects of that you know, if you think about how fucked our healthcare system is and how a lot of women are not believed in hospitals when they say that they're feeling pain, it's because there are not enough women doctors. And it's a cycle. And in the end, it helps no one. And I guess like I'm not saying that these arguments are invalid. I think there are tons of parents who just like shove their kids into iPads and who don't really care. And they have the means to care. They just don't. But I just question a lot of the times what we all hope to achieve with what we post on social media. And I think this particular video like kind of triggered a fight or flight response from me because I just feel like as a student, this would be horrifying to see. And that's kind of where my brain went. Um, I think, you know, if you posted on like, I guess like the teacher's Reddit forum or whatever, then I would have like a less visceral reaction to it. I don't know. To put it in perspective, I also felt really weird about um, that trend in 2020, 2021 when nurses were like pulling pranks and documenting them on TikTok and the pranks were like really unprofessional and it was just like really weird because I'm like, this is an institution where there is a lack of trust already built in and you're just seeing so many stories of doctors and nurses like doing malpractice, not to say that these nurses were like actually doing it um, when it came down to it, but like just knowing that and then adding to that narrative in a way that's not helpful. I just wonder, I'm like, what's the point? Because I think the side effects is that people feel more uncomfortable about going to seek medical help 
And then they're just dealing with like diseases, issues by themselves that are really dangerous that they actually need medication for or whatnot. I just don't think it's helpful. My second controversy on Twitter or whatever (laughs) is that I was engaging in girl theory discourse, which is always a bad idea. Um, And I'm actually done talking about girl theory. I think it's really tiring. And I think a lot of people are tired of it because as I said in in my video, everyone has their own experience with the word girl and what it means and the constraints of femininity imposed on us since we were children. Like everyone's experience is so personal and valid. And I think a lot of people, when they see someone else not agreeing with their own experience, they get really upset about it because they take it as a personal attack. So what I was seeing on Twitter is a lot of people were complaining about how girlifying everything is leading to a reinforcement of the gender binary, especially when juxtaposed with the fact that there's all these like men memes too, like men loving the Roman empire. On a surface level, I think all of this is really fun. It makes me giggle. I think it's hilarious. At the same time, I do think that criticisms are valid and that a lot of these criticisms are voiced by genderqueer people and gay women. And I think their perspectives are equally important and should be listened to. Um, Not to say that, you know, whoever is wearing a frou-frou dress is deliberately saying that they're anti-LGBTQ, but, you know, it's just like when things become culturally mainstream, I think a lot of nuance gets lost in the conversation. And then throw in companies trying to capitalize off of these trends and you just get a hodgepodge of really watered down shit because I can totally see how a very conservative trad wife, far right woman or man would look at these trends and use them to reinforce the gender binary in a harmful way. I can totally see why that would fit into their narrative perfectly. And I don't think it's a crime to point that out, but I got a lot of replies from people who are like, you just can't have fun. Like nothing, everything is like so serious with you. Like you're so humorless or whatever. I'm not trying to yuck a yum. I'm also not trying to yum a yuck. I'm just trying to keep myself like open and perceptive to different people's takes and experiences and not fall into this trap of just seeing my own perspective as the one and objective truth. But I think a lot of people who use Twitter feel that way, where they think their perspective is the objective reality. Anyone else who has a different perspective is seriously misinterpreting what's going on. Part of the reason why I think this kind of mindset is prolific on Twitter is because one, the word count is so low. So there's no way you could really say everything you need to say in a tweet or two. And also people just kind of know of the Twitter environment as like this hot take environment. And so they're kind of like logging in to fight people. I used to love Twitter because there were a lot of writers on Twitter who I followed the writing of and they would write like really interesting opinions, even people who are not writers, you know, like I feel like you can always find something interesting that someone has to say about on Twitter. 
The problem is now I think people are just so, have gotten so angry. And so even if like I read a take that makes perfect sense to me, I'll go into the replies to see if like, you know, there's any like intelligent discourse about it. And then it's just people like yelling or like making disparaging remarks or jokes about this person's character, their appearance, whatnot. It's just not a productive environment whatsoever. And it got me to a point where I don't even like read replies anymore. And I was like, what is the point of me just like tweeting to the void and not engaging with anyone? If I was going to do that, I could literally just like write in a diary. So that's why I've kind of logged off from Twitter. I don't know if I'll return. I feel like I won't because I think the platform has just become more far right, especially with Elon Musk's changes. It's getting more toxic and more uninhabitable. So I moved to Tumblr, <laughs> which is my my first love, right? I was a Tumblr girl back in like 20 – from 2010 to like 2017, I was a Tumblr girl. I had a really long run. I don't have my old blogs anymore. I deactivated, but I, you, I started a new one like a couple months ago, maybe like a year ago. I actually don't remember, but I would like log on intermittently like once a month just to look at photos – but I'm trying to be more active on it because what I actually do like is Tumblr's For You page. My reason for kind of like dropping off of Tumblr is because so many people I know left Tumblr and because of that my dashboard was like dead. So I was just not seeing any new content and I was kind of like too lazy to find someone new. But with the For You page, it just like gives me recommendations. It gives me stuff that I actually like and I've just been really enjoying it. There definitely is a toxic side of Tumblr, which I've seen people allude to. Um, I haven't really come across it yet, but I think just by nature of like the fact that these text posts are so long, it leads to at least like more intelligent debates versus just like one-liners trying to getcha, um, which is what I see on Twitter a lot. Tumblr was also the site where I first like really got into research because back in the in the good old days, I just followed a lot of blogs who would just post like random trivia or like, you know, people would just post resources or links to cool pages on the internet and I would get in these wormholes. And I even got a little bit of a glimpse of that again on my return because I came across this text post that I thought was really interesting. <laughs> it was actually like a joke, but the text post is, love the random censorship in Victorian novels. Mr. Dashline came down from the Dash Shire in the summer of 18 Dash. Who, where, when? Wouldn't you like to know, book boy? <laughs> so it's a joke, but it got me to thinking about why Victorian authors would dash out the names of places and people. And so I looked it up and I came across this Book Riot article, which was really cool. But they basically talk about how this trend technically started with censoring for protection. So when people wrote societal critiques prior to the 19th century, they would blink out specific names. For example, the reporting of a parliamentary discussion was banned until 1771, so the information was published under false names. Often, writers left the first letters behind as clues for readers to decode. Even earlier in the 1600s, the poet John Dresden Mac Fecknow of 1682 hid his attack on Thomas Shadwell by using S-in the text of the poem. 
There are also scandal sheets, which were like gossip sheets um, that would blur out people's names. So for example, in a 1772 issue of the Town and Country magazine, the writer chronicled the years-long affair between the married Mrs. L-Flull, like L-F-L-E. So they kept the first letter and the last couple letters of her name and the dashing Lord H-N. And even 18th century pornography utilized the same crossing out as a way to protect the distributors from legal trouble. So in the Book Riot article, they call this censorship, this form of censorship, the Dostoevsky Dash, because the writer Dostoevsky used it a lot, but he definitely wasn't the first one. The misconception is that fiction authors were also doing this to protect identities, but they were just feeding into the trend to make their novels more realistic to blur the lines of fiction and nonfiction. As a more concrete example of this through a different method, in the book Robinson Crusoe, which was written by Daniel Defoe, in the book, Defoe originally cited Crusoe, the character Crusoe himself as the author, basically marketing the book as a travel diary rather than a work of fiction. But of course it was fiction. And today, people still love to blur the lines of fiction and nonfiction. Um, this is such a random example, but the one that comes to mind first for me for some odd reason, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie The Fourth Kind. It's a horror movie. It came out when I was in middle school. It terrified me to my core. I will never watch that movie again. I don't even know if it's like objectively terrifying, but as a 12-year-old, I was scarred and I will never watch it again. But it's about alien abduction. Just to say, I was not afraid of alien abduction until I saw this movie. I don't know. It was just not on my radar. I've never lived in a remote area, which I think is where people tend to report alien stuff. And so I always thought I was in the clear. But yeah, this movie was just so unhinged. But the whole premise was that it was based on a true story. And for scenes that were really scary with like alien abduction and stuff, they would juxtapose the film footage with the so-called real found footage of what actually happened. So that was terrifying to me. Also, when they marketed it, Universal Pictures, who produced this movie, created or distributed, I don't really know um, about that, but they created a website with fake news stories supposedly taken from real Alaska newspapers about these incidents. But all of it was fake. Like, it was so fake. And I didn't know about this till years later because I was so terrified of it. And I just accepted it as fact because I was a kid. But actually like looking it up, they hired an actor who plays like the real doctor and the reenactments were like fake still. Like everything was fake about it. The news stories were fake. And actually these newspapers, they sued Universal, eventually reaching a settlement for it because yeah, they were just fake, fake news. But this was like a huge marketing form for horror movies, especially of this era. For some reason, I feel like everyone loved the idea of based on a true story. The Haunting of Connecticut was another one. I never saw it. I read the IMDb plot summary because I was so, I was like too terrified to actually watch it in theaters, but I wanted to know what everyone was talking about. So I just read it through. But yeah, I remember that was like a really famous like tagline in the poster. They were like based on a true events. All of this is to say I love Tumblr. I am so glad I'm back on Tumblr. It's like my happy place. It's like social, but also not social. It's like a more social form of Pinterest. I feel like Pinterest can feel super, super lonely um, and unorganized. But I think Tumblr, it's like 
more organized. It can be more social, but it also like is a great platform to just like lurk and not be social. It's the best of all the worlds. Um, the only thing I hate is the ads, but I'm not willing to pay for a membership. <laughs> so I guess I'll just deal with it. So I just stepped out to do a couple errands, but <laughs> now I'm back. Okay. So going back to what I was saying earlier about Twitter discourse, melting my brain, making me rabid. I feel like a lot of the reasons why Twitter in particular is such a toxic space is because of the rampant what about meism, the tendency to make everything subjective and not to have any nuance, and then also vulnerable narcissism. So a vulnerable narcissist differs from a grandiose narcissist or a narcissist we're like more familiar with in that they are insecure, self-conscious, and emotionally withdrawn. They do have an inflated sense of self-importance, hence like the term narcissism. But I guess when you mostly think of a narcissist, you think of someone who like only talks about themselves and is like outwardly doing so and is like super self-centered and whatnot. But yeah, a vulnerable narcissist is someone who struggles with low self-esteem, fear of abandonment, rejection, and may seek constant validation from others and have difficulty handling criticism or negative feedback and may engage in manipulative or exploitative behavior to maintain a sense of control or superiority. I'm not saying everyone online is a narcissist because I also feel like that term is like slung around so much and it actually is like a personality disorder that I think you have to actually be diagnosed with though honestly like the whole like self-diagnosing versus medical diagnosing debate is something that I'm always conflicted about because part of me is like yeah medical care is so um inaccessible for a lot of people and that leads a lot of people to not be able to get properly diagnosed but that doesn't mean like they don't have certain disorders or cer certain issues but at the same time I also get that like a lot of the times you just WebMD your symptoms and you're like, oh my God, I have that when that might not necessarily be true. As someone who has WebMD'd many <laughs> symptoms that I've had in terms of like having physical illnesses and being like, oh my God, I, I have cancer question mark. So yeah, I can see both sides of the argument. That's beside the point. I'm not trying to call everyone a narcissist because I know that is a term that is overused in our culture, but I do think there are a lot of people on the internet who are vulnerable narcissists, or at least who exhibit the same symptoms as a person with vulnerable narcissism. I don't know if I want to like diagnose everyone who feels this way as a narcissist because I don't know everyone who feels this way, but like just the idea that you are the main character of your world and not allowing nuance or different perspectives or just prioritizing your own self-interest over other people. So I was watching this Curtis Connor video. I don't actually remember if it's relatively new or not because I kind of don't watch YouTube videos in order of when they show up on my subscriptions tab. I I don't know. I just like mostly just like click on them when I feel like it. Oh my God. Okay, my cat's just knocked over the mirror, but it's totally fine. It didn't crack or shatter or anything miraculously. That's just what happens when you're a working mother of multiple cats. Anyway, in this video, Curtis was talking about how people will videotape strangers and make fun of them for content and how that's really fucked up. And I totally agree. I think that that culture is only normalized because people view themselves as the main character. People who take this footage of other people view themselves as the main character where they feel like their virality, their presence 
on the internet is more important than the privacy of these random people who they come across on the street. And I'm sure that there are some cases where people ask for permission before posting footage of someone else online, but you've definitely seen the videos of people just kind of taking creeper paparazzi footage of, you know, some random people just hanging out um, and saying something either like about their outfits or whatnot. Like in the video and also something that I saw on Twitter – was this photo of these girls walking and they were wearing jorts. So if you don't know what a jort, what jorts are, they're these, they're denim shorts, jean shorts, but ones that are popular today are kind of longer, like boyfriend jorts. They kind of reach to the knee or a little bit past the knee. They're really popular in New York. But someone was making fun of this outfit, these girls wearing jorts, and then someone commented and was like, and they're also probably the meanest girls you've ever known. And I don't know, clearly it was a joke resulting from the projection of this person's experiences probably interacting with a girl who wore jorts. (laughs) But I honestly, like, when I think of the person who was actually photographed and if they came across that Twitter thread and if they, like, saw these things that people were saying, making judgments about their characters, I mean, if I was in their shoes, I would feel really fucking bad. And, you know, like, also just on a whole body image front, I know a lot of people who don't like to be photographed or who don't like their bodies to be photographed specifically, and especially if they can't control, like, the angle of the photo. I think that's a totally normal thing. Um, But I think when strangers take photos of other people, obviously that, like, betrays that kind of boundary that a lot of people have. And... You could just see a photo, an unflattering, quote-unquote unflattering photo of yourself being shared online and just have that feed into your low self-esteem, low body image or whatever. And then it compounded by people making fun of you. I I honestly don't understand why we do it. Now, I've definitely made fun of people, um, you know, because they've said something crazy or, or done something crazy. But – It's people who are posting content of themselves online and who are putting themselves out there and saying crazy things out there. I think there's a big difference between that and having someone post photos, videos of you unknowingly onto the internet without your consent and then making fun of you. Another video that I watched and kind of similar to the brain rot of social media, this was a really good video. Abby Cox released a video about phrenology or face reading. So if you don't know what that is, there's basically a trend on TikTok where people are getting really into quote-unquote Chinese face reading. And what that entails is pointing out how specific facial features lead to certain life paths or making moral judgments out of reading people's facial features. And if that sounds like scientific racism, that's because that's what face reading is rooted in. And Abby goes into such good detail about this, about how face reading is rooted in phrenology and physiognomy, which are scientific racism. They are pseudosciences that are used to justify a racial hierarchy. And if you look up physiognomy, you can clearly identify that this is a bullshit science. But I think because a lot of these face readers say what they're doing is 
Chinese face reading and ancient art. It adds this like allure of mysticism, of traditionalism, of ancient wisdom. And I just want to say, just because something is ancient doesn't mean it's good. A lot of the times, ancient wisdom is uninformed. And if you really look at the kind of hierarchies that existed in 700 BC in China, um, they were not progressive standards of living at all by any means. There's a lot of Westerners in particular who put a lot of like Asian, Eastern health and wisdom on a pedestal and just because it seems like different and therefore better. I don't know what it is. It definitely like falls into like Asian fetish territory into like the whole um, weird yogi romanticization territory. I don't know. It's, it's complicated and it's weird, but I think people need to stop because if you look at Victorian doctors, you know, this was like stuff from a little bit ago, or, you know, for example, bloodletting as a practice. That doesn't work, but it's old. It's definitely an old practice, but should we continue doing it? Should we continue wearing lead makeup on our faces just because it's old? No. I get why people like the idea of face reading. I think it falls under that whole personality quiz type of fun that people like to do, or even astrology. Like people love reading more about themselves, of learning more about themselves in some kind of new medium or format. But maybe just take a BuzzFeed quiz instead of getting into face reading. I saw a video where a woman talks about nose sizes as just like an example of to show you like how crazy I think this whole phenomenon is. But she's talking about nose sizes. Um, so you know it's just not going to go well from the get-go. And she says, according to Chinese face reading, a nose is attached to your ego. So the bigger your nose, the more self-absorbed you are. And the smaller your nose, the more insecure you are. Obviously, as many of us know, noses are a product of your environment, of your heritage, culture. I remember actually reading this interesting article that I will share, link in the show notes, but it was from Penn State University and they did a study. It was like in 2017 where they looked at climate and nose shapes and the researchers found evidence to support the idea that wider noses are more common in warm, humid climates while narrower noses are more common in cold, dry climates. And professor of anthropology at Penn State, Mark D. Shriver, he says it all goes back to Thompson's rule. In the late 1800s, Arthur Thompson said that long and thin noses occurred in dry, cold areas, while short and wide noses occurred in hot, humid areas. Many people have tested the question with measurements of the skull, but no one had done measurements on live people. And so they did the research using live people and found that one purpose of the nose is to condition inhaled air so that it is warm and moist. The narrower nostrils seem to alter the airflow so that the mucus covered inside of the nose can humidify and warm the air more efficiently. It was probably more essential to have this trait in cold and dry climates. People with narrower nostrils probably fared better and had more offspring than people with wider nostrils in colder climates. This led to a gradual decrease in nose width and populations living far away from the equator. So that's just one reason. There's obviously many different factors that go into facial features and the way that they've developed over time. But these reasons are rooted in science and not because some people have bigger egos than other people. 
I also read the comments, obviously, because I have no sense of self-preservation in any way when it comes to these things. When I see something that gets me angry for some reason, I'm like, I got to get myself angrier by looking at the comments. It never bodes well. I'm trying to work on it. But I wanted to see what the reception was for this kind of information, just, you know, to measure the spread of misinformation, I guess. And someone said that this was anti-Semitism. And I totally agree. And someone commented under that concern saying, go touch grass, which I thought was like so ironic because I'm like, you are literally defending someone who's talking about how your nose size affects your confidence and financial security because she really goes into that. You're defending this person making these really weird claims and saying anyone who says this is weird and probably rooted in a larger issue needs to touch grass. Like I, I don't understand. I also saw a weird tweet in a similar vein. Like this was like months ago, but I still remember it because it was so weird where they post this Twitter user posted photos of like Anya Taylor-Joy and Rachel Zegler and Halle Bailey and said that they all have like deer head shapes and that men are drawn to them because they look like prey. I guess because their like eyes are wider set And someone else was like, oh, like if you have wider set eyes, like you're meant to be like famous right now or something like that. And I think it's just funny because when you line up photos like that, then you're like, oh, everyone has wide set eyes in Hollywood. But there's so many people who don't, who are also successful. And it's just creating a narrative um, by selecting certain pictures of people who look similar and pushing this idea that you have to look like this to uh, get ahead in life. It's so misinformed and ultimately going to convince more people to get plastic surgery. Like when I was looking up Chinese face reading on Google, the top results for me were listed on like plastic surgery websites as a way to encourage people to get procedures done. There's just so much misinformation that circulates, especially around beauty and, okay, something else that I read. I've talked about Jessica Defino so many times, but I really think you all should subscribe to her Substack called The Unpublishable. She talks a lot about the beauty industry. I think even if you don't listen to her advice, because she is pretty hardcore with how she's against a lot of products um, on the shelves. And I think she has a really good point in being that way. I also want to recognize that a lot of people like the routine of skincare And if that's what gets you through your day, then go for it. If you have the money to do it, go for it. But a lot of her articles and essays are about debunking promises that the beauty industry makes. And she cites this book, Clean the New Science of Skin, and I actually downloaded it. So I'm reading it right now. I'm going through it. And it was written by Dr. James Hamblin. And there's a section that she writes about, about how vitamin C – actually doesn't do much for you as a form of skincare, in the form of skincare. So this is the quote, the definite way to get vitamin C into your body cells is the less trendy, time-tested option of eating fresh fruits and vegetables. These also contain other elements like fiber that benefit the microbiome. The stomach contains strong acids your skin lacks that are made to absorb nutrients like vitamin C. Unless a product has a low enough pH to make it through the skin's acid mantle, your skin will basically carry the product on the outside. 
There's some evidence that topical vitamin C can change the skin, but this approach has not proven any more effective than simply eating vitamin C. And the exact same compound, when mixed into skin products, can become exorbitantly expensive. In the same essay, she links um, an old essay that she wrote about niacinamide and talks about how eating skincare, like eating the ingredients that would be in skincare is actually more effective than putting it on, like lathering it on your face. So yeah, I definitely think it's worth reading. I'm not a scientist in any way, so I don't know necessarily what is factually true. Like I can't corroborate I can't tell you for sure that she's correct, but she does like list a lot of different um, sources. So if you're into that, I would highly recommend checking her out and reading her articles. It might save you some money. (laughs) Okay, friends, that's all I have today. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. The 26th is my birthday. So I am now 27, which is crazy. Because I don't feel like I'm 27. I mean, I do. I do when I don't. I don't know what 27 is supposed to feel like. Let's be real. Oh, actually, you know what? This is the quote I'm going to leave off of. The birthday was just a side note to keep y'all posted on my aging process. (laughs) But I found this quote on Tumblr. I thought it was really cool. And it's related to what we've been saying. And I want to end on that note. Umberto Eco. Umberto Eco. Sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly, wrote about ugliness. Quote, Beauty is in some way boring. Even if its concept changes through the ages, a beautiful object must always follow certain rules. A beautiful nose shouldn't be longer than that or shorter than that. On the contrary, an ugly nose can be as long as the one of Pinocchio or as big as the trunk of an elephant or like the beak of an eagle. And so ugliness is unpredictable and offers an infinite range of possibility. Beauty is finite. Ugliness is infinite, like God. (laughs) I love that quote so much. I think that it's so true. There is a certain godliness that comes with unconventional attractiveness or ugliness in the world. Obviously, there are social repercussions for being ugly or carrying yourself in an ugly way. But from an art perspective, I think this is really true and I and I just adore it. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening as always. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day and I'll talk to you next time. As always, this episode was edited by Sophie Carter, music by Olivia Martinez, and art by Lindsay Mintz. Mm-hmm.